Welcome to the Traverse Podcast with me, Debbie Hannon. So, theatre has changed. COVID-19 has sent us into a reflective pause. It has inspired art, activism, the examination of power, and demanded a new normal as we all invent what comes next. This series is inspired by Arundhati Roy's statement, the pandemic is a portal. And these podcasts are a selection of interviews with the people who are shaping that future, inside and outside of theatre. They are intimate, candid conversations about lived experience where people speak their truth to power. It's important to say here that our interviewees speak freely on a range of topics. Whilst you might not share all their points of view, they are here to be heard. Each one is a provocation which looks to examine theatre making and storytelling, how we do it and its place in our new world. Our first guest is the self-titled bionic writer for stage and screen, Matilda Ibini. Matilda is an award-winning writer whose most recent production, Little Miss Burden, was on at the Bunker Theatre in December 2019 and was supposed to transfer to the Traverse this August. Unfortunately, COVID-19 stopped Little Miss getting to Edinburgh, but Matilda was commissioned for Traverse 3, the Traverse's new online all-digital venue to write Shielders, a piece of digital theatre stroke kind of short film made remotely about three friends who are in lockdown in Glasgow. One friend has to continue shielding and the piece digs into the emotional toll that takes, alongside a bit of vintage sci-fi and a whole chunk of Afrofuturism. Matilda and I are long-time collaborators, so we go in deep. We talk about Missy Elliott, fables and myths, surviving the pandemic financially, and about the theatre industry hanging on to some bad old ways. Content warning here, we also talk about the Westminster government's effect on disabled citizens through the pandemic. Matilda, how are you today? Hey Debbie, I am good, thanks, considering I've got a bit of brain fog Mm. uh, today where I just woke up and kind of like my my mental faculties are a bit slower today so like recollecting things appointments meetings I was meant to have I wasn't on the ball today so I just feel a bit everything just feels a lot more slowed down basically so you're living in slow-mo yeah this is my brain fog voice like it's much slower and calmer and a little bit quieter than normal yes I really feel you I also get brain fog from time to time and what the brilliant thing is about working with Matilda and we've always done this in our rehearsal rooms whenever we've been together is that everyone is welcome in whatever state they arrive in and that includes everything related to bodies as well because the point is that we are allowed to have brain fog (laughs) Yes, and bodies are complicated. Which actually leads very neatly, like you knew this, onto my first question, which is about the word bionic. Tell me about describing yourself as a bionic playwright. Yeah, it came about in 2018. I'd broken my leg for the second time. I've promised the universe I'm not breaking any more bones. But this time, this particular fracture required me to have surgery and they put metal in my knee. And someone visited me in hospital and was like, oh, wow, now you're kind of part woman, part feminine energy, part machine. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. In a sense that before then I was already a wheelchair user and I'd never thought of my wheelchair as a kind of machine that supports me in that way. I think there's still a lot of talk about when writers call themselves like disabled writers. What's really interesting is like 
being a disabled writer is more about personhood, that like my work isn't necessarily disabled and the work that I create doesn't always address disability. So I've always had this kind of thing about what's the best way to address myself and my art in a way that encompasses all of that without it having to centre on my disability in a way or centre on the barriers I faced. I kind of stumbled upon Bionic and when I looked it up it just kind of rung true. It kind of just made sense for me that yes now that I've got metal physically implanted in me but also that my wheelchair is a part of me like when it's broken or if it's not working I'm not able to move or function in the world. It's, it's a part of my spirit almost so I feel like the word bionic describes my work as just kind of different and out there, but also describes the way I move through the world. And that will have an impact on the stories that I tell. I really heard the word personhood there, like disability is personhood. Say that we've got an able-bodied listener. How would you elaborate on that concept to them? I just think acknowledging, I mean, it took a long while to acknowledge that I was a disabled person, let alone a disabled writer. That was hella hard when you've grown up all the narratives that you've been led to believe and even things like within your own family that disability is bad, disability is wrong, disability is seen as a negative. It somehow takes away from your personhood as opposed to actually being disabled is a part of my identity. It's what makes me whole and without it there's a piece missing. And it's not to say that I love my disability or I love my medical condition But actually all the experiences and all the people that I've met as a result of it and the way that I live as a result of it makes me feel whole, makes me feel my most human. So I feel like when I think of my personhood and all the different things about like being creative and being spiritual and being queer and being black and being Nigerian, disability is also included in that in that puzzle. And I think reframing it is not a negation of something is mm. it's like what Little Miss Burden did really as a piece and what like actually what Shielders does as well. So often disability is made to seem like it takes away a part of one's humanity as opposed to adding a richness to it. Yeah, I remember you saying to me once that like maybe it was your family or someone had said to you like, well, who would you be without this? Like you'd be you'd be a wild one. You'd be all over the world. You'd be living wild lives. And I was like, Matilda, Oh, yeah, are. yeah. <laughs> Like you literally are living multiple wild yeah. lives and traveling everywhere and like uh, taking us on journeys. <laughs> it's like, uh, I'd love to hear how you began writing because you've, I mean, that incredible scholarship that got you a master sounds pretty pivotal, yeah. but I imagine it began before that. I think it started with a love of rather realizing a love for performance. So like most kids, I grew up thinking I wanted to be an actor. I was a very shy kid growing up. Um, I think definitely as a result, now that I look back of my condition and not being, not having the language for it and it not being diagnosed. So I just grew up really shy. And my mum came across these youth drama groups or local youth drama group that was looking for people to join. That'd be great for your confidence and self-esteem and bring you out of your shell. And my mum thought that'd be perfect for me. And actually, when she presented me the idea, I was like, no, I shut it down. I was like, are you mad? Why would I want to go and embarrass myself in a group of strangers? No. Um, and she's like, let's just go to one. It's free. You never know what will happen. What if you just make friends outside of school and stuff like that? And little did I know that was my way into theatre and loving performance and storytelling and telling stories for the stage and interacting with other actors and directors. 
unfortunately, as I've got a progressive condition, so as it, it got a bit worsened as I got older and I had less and less physical mobility, and at least back then I wasn't aware of any like disabled actors or anything like that, and I just thought, this is going to get really hard to do and I'm not going to have fun. Like I wasn't feeling comfortable in my own body, let alone having that body then on stage. And rather than completely withdraw from that world and the medium, a couple of different like mentors, like guest speakers who came in, encouraged all of us actually in the group to try your hand at writing, like writing your own characters and writing scenes and developing your own stories. And up until that point, I'd only ever written poetry at school. So I tried my hand at it and was terrible, but I was encouraged to keep going. And as I learned more and more about playwriting, it meant that I could stay in this medium, still hang out with directors, still hang out with writers, even though I wasn't performing myself. And also still made me feel comfortable in my own body because it didn't, I wasn't required to do anything that I couldn't do. And that's kind of how that journey began. When I went to uni, I applied through UCAS to do psychology. And last minute, I changed it to English literature and creative writing without telling my mum until <laughs> after I'd started the course. So she couldn't make me change it back. <laughs> I mean, is your family, like, were they very supportive? Were they like, why are you choosing this path? I think my mum was just worried because one, it was hard to get into uni anyway. And like psychology is like at least to a lot of, I want to say, immigrant parents, that kind of doctor, lawyer, engineer, those kinds of really formal jobs assure them that you'll get work when you leave so that you'll be able to be self-sufficient. And because she personally doesn't know much about the writing world and what have you, it just seemed like I was going to waste three years doing nothing, come out the end of it and realise like I've got nowhere to go, as opposed to like trying to convince her that there are writers, there are black writers, Mallory Blackman is a writer. And I was reading her books at school. Like I was like clutching at straws, but like Benjamin Zephaniah, he's a, he's a poet and a writer and he goes to schools. And like, my mom was like, so you just want to become a school teacher? I was like, no, I want to be a writer. And she's like, well, how much do writers make? I was like, I don't know, but I'm going to find out. But she eventually did like come around because she was incredibly supportive. Whilst I was at uni, I did things like the Soho Writers Group and the Royal Court Writers Programme. And back then I couldn't take public transport, like that my condition had progressed to such a point where I was reliant on my mum or taxis and I wasn't working or earning <laughs> enough to be able to take taxis everywhere. But my mum, God bless her, she would drive me on a Saturday morning after working Monday to Friday at her two part-time jobs to go do these three-hour workshops at Soho or pick me up on her way home from the Royal Court Writers Programme or even sometimes wait in the car for the duration of that workshop and then bring me home again. So she believed in me even before I started believing in myself. Mm. It's mad these like pivotal people on these journeys. I can think of like the industry mentors I've had who've changed my life, but actually the sort of side players like my best mate who let me sleep on her floor for like three months when I was getting established in London and had no money to set wow. myself up. And actually she's this phenomenal scientist who just loves the theatre and kind of like was, you know, my family for those months. And I was mm. a little newbie, had no idea about anything. She believed I was going to come and like 
you know, live up in London and establish myself. And I really didn't. I was like living off digestive biscuits, <laughs> questioning what the hell I was doing. So it's so key, those moments, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I was really interested what you're saying about all the elements of your personhood there. And especially as someone who directed a show that was essentially a bit of autofiction. So I got I got to dive into like a lot of those elements. <laughs> and I think to me, like we've worked together now on multiple things and especially on the dramaturgy of those things. I just wanted to ask if you were to say like these are the big influences on my storytelling, mm. I guess, what what comes to mind? I think one of the best advices I was given about playwriting or when thinking about writing a story is like write all the things you love into it, like all the things you love about live performance or just storytelling in general. And with some of the things I love include like music videos. Yes. I like I used to watch MTV, VH1, Kiss when they were just like channels. We're always talking about Miss Elliot. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Like I used to watch endless music videos and how they tell stories in three minutes or less just off a song and I was heavily inspired in my head I see them like short films those music videos mm. what's like a top music video for you I love Missy Elliott's whole discography because her music videos are not just short films she's a dancer's musician she makes incredible music to dance to you can't help but want to get up and dance to it and that's evident in the music videos because then the choreography is so inventive and imaginative and ahead of its time and starting trends of dance. It's brilliant. But I'd say just because this, this one I keep coming back to reference is Janelle Monet's. I think the song is called Many Moons. The whole concept of that video is that there are different versions of this android called Cindy Mayweather and they're walking down a runway for auction so people are bidding on these different versions of this android and the whole video is incredible it's so like sci-fi but also really political and it's just so imaginative and clever and and really brilliant storytelling because it's her first couple albums were part of a wider narrative about this love story between a human called Anthony Greendown and an android called Cindy Mayweather and I absolutely love it and if you listen to her music they sound like film scores it's like you're watching a film in your head this is very you I can I can see the connection So music videos are a big influence. Yeah, yeah. And music in general. What else? I think a lot of Nigerian culture has like filtered into my work. And I want to say sometimes unknowingly where I wasn't even aware. I'm a big fan of like bright colours. Also like big casts. Like if I had my way, I would always be writing stuff that was like more than six people, like minimum. It's budgets that have made me like, okay, is there a way that we can get three people to play like 20 characters? <laughs> like, this is the truth of the playwright. <laughs> <laughs> I find, I think a lot of my culture has slipped in there in terms of like the music and my references to pop culture are kind of this hybrid of kind of Nigerian culture and um, London culture mm. I think have also slipped in there so in terms of kind of foods and clothing and and references to values and and belief systems as well and I also say Christianity has slipped in there as well even though I'm not a practicing Christian anymore like I still think I'm constantly like trying to write against it not in a way that's to um, reject it but rather to challenge all the things that I was just kind of forced to believe or told to believe that were true. 
I'm always like looking at a lot of the values that I was taught up to believe as kind of like stories. And if you've told me that story, could I take that and create a new one? Yeah, I often look at your work and I think they're like alternative fables. Oh, oh yeah, they, they're sort of offered like new myths, myths for now. Yeah, definitely. Like my mom, I think is a big influencer of that in terms of her dad used to tell her so many parables growing up. And that's kind of how I think my visual imagination grew was because my mom, rather than like telling us off for doing something wrong, she'd explain it to us via a story. She'd say, it is like when X does this, or it is like when someone says this but doesn't follow through she'd always turn these life lessons or when she was like correcting our behavior or something into a kind of visual narrative and like one of my favorite ones was the story of when she said when you think you know better and it was the story of how the tortoise got the cracks on its shell because it thought it knew better, climbed up a palm tree and fell onto its back. And those cracks on its back are to remind it that you don't always know better. Yeah, don't be so bold would be, yeah. <laughs> would be my like <laughs> Irish grandmother's version. <laughs> yeah, it was a similar like fable-based raising, but I can totally see that showing up in your work because there's a vibrancy to it, like an emotional connection to the lesson. You spoke about visual imagination there. Your writing has a massive amount of visual elements in it. How do you think about that in the dramaturgy as you're writing? Are you conscious of it? Is it the same for you, whether you're doing a play or a film? That's a good question. I think there's like a version of it that's like just my everyday visual language in my head. And when I'm writing, it's like I'm trying to distill it in a way that works for that medium. For example, the first TV thing I ever wrote, someone said, this is just a play with different font. Like it was charming, <laughs> which is a really harsh, but yeah. they had a really good point because everything happened in one space and everyone said what they felt. There wasn't like the visual I wasn't using the medium of screen that rather than talking about going somewhere, let's just go there. Mm. So it feels really intrinsic for me, the way that I like process information and process the world and my relationships to other people have their own visual language in my head. But when I'm trying to tell a story, I'm trying to almost like sieve it through a medium about which parts of it is useful, which parts of it is just for me that I just enjoy thinking about and conjuring in my head. But I feel it also comes from only recently realising that some of that strength of my imagination comes from trauma, that like mm. growing up disabled and being like the only dis disabled person in your family, in your church, in your community, in your school at one point men I was just like hella bullied like horrifically and I used to just daydream away like I couldn't leave physically those environments but I could leave in my head mentally and so I just got used to be able to kind of where there weren't friends to begin with I would just conjure friends in my head where there were horrible experiences that I had I would rewrite them in my head how I'd like them to have gone and it became such a emotional crutch to be able to deal with the difficulties I was facing in life in terms of like still not being diagnosed but having this condition that was worsening became like a really a coping mechanism basically but as we know coping mechanisms can at times get a little bit out of control. Storytelling was your survival and now it's your bread and butter and yeah. your life how that's all intertwined how do you keep going? <laughs> 
So <laughs> that's a really good question. I think one, because I've had a lot of counselling, so that's mm-hmm. helped to be able to like extract who is Matilda without the storytelling? Who is Matilda when she's not a writer? And realise that actually creativity is an intrinsic part of my identity in terms of being disabled means constantly adapting, constantly thinking outside the box, constantly problem solving. So I'm constantly having to engage in my imagination, think problems through, try and find a solution or what have you. And so that's always going to be a part of me. But then storytelling has become the coping mechanism that then morphed into a way that felt purposeful, that when I engaged with playwriting and performance, it had such a profound effect on the way that I saw myself, the way I saw the world and my place in it, that I felt a calling to make sure that others get that opportunity to experience that too. And hopefully if that's through my stories or other people's stories or stories they go on to tell themselves, then I know that my work has done something good. Yeah, your work does do that. I guess I'd love to hear about specifically, so you've got this like brilliant history of who you are as a writer and your roots in and it comes like deep from who you are. And now 2020, how has lockdown been for you? You've been busy, right? Oof. Um... Not in the beginning, funnily enough. In the beginning, it was just a whole lot of stress, anxiety, and uh, a lot of suppressed feelings bubbling to the surface. It was less to do with being locked down in my house. Like I've been locked down several times in my house for lots of different reasons. That doesn't scare me at all. What was scary was the team of carers that I employ having less people available and obviously them having to figure out if they were still able to work. There weren't any clear guidelines about how we navigate this period of time together because just because there's a lockdown, my needs don't just stop. Like I I would still need care. What do I do in this instance? I was calling up different, you know, services, but them not knowing the best way to advise. I just want to jump in and say Matilda is a crack businesswoman because you have to be when you're you do you're such you're like you're an employer of multiple of a team of people who you manage to like make your care package happen and you have to like run that business you know yeah oh definitely a lot of that felt threatened but by the lockdown and and this kind of restricted movement and But then also, you know that your government is trying to kill you when in the middle of a pandemic, their first act, their quickest act is to put in a bill into law as part of the coronavirus bill that uh, local authorities are allowed to strip away any services that they deem not a necessity in this current climate. And you're just like, okay, we knew the cuts killed people. Now they're definitely trying to use this opportunity as a way of culling disabled people. It was disgusting. It just angered me so. I was. It was hard not to get depressed that, like, mm. wow, even in a pandemic, you still want lots of people who are immune compromised or have you or have pre-existing conditions or disabilities, you still want them to suffer. And that's cruelty outside of my imagination. My uh, level of cruelty extends to, like, Disney villains and a bit of history, you know, the the very uh, lax uh, history education I got in state schools. Like, you know, I know some of the villains in history, but this is on a whole nother level of cruelty. This is like expertise level of cruelty that I've never imagined possible to hate communities to such an extent. 
you create laws that will shorten their lives. Because let's be honest, cutting someone's care package or benefit does not save lives, does not make life easier. It shortens lives. It causes pain. It causes suffering. And it just felt like this coronavirus mm-hmm. bill was to add to that. So a lot of my time in the beginning was like, how the hell am I going to get through this if I don't even have a full team of carers? So a lot of that was trying to prioritize what's the most important things I need right now before I could even think about trying to make anything. How amongst all that have you made work still? Yeah, do you know, I'll be honest, poverty, poverty drives you to work. Like I still have to pay. (laughs) My care package does not cover my overnight care. So that means I've got to pay that somehow Other or I don't get overnight care. And if I don't get overnight care, I fall ill. And if I fall ill, then I don't work. So it's been mad having to try and find ways of creating work or finding like who needs a writer in this time? Like we need doctors. We need key workers. It's like who needs a writer? (laughs) Like I will happily write whatever if it means you pay me so I can pay my carers. And that kicked in about, I want to say, a month or two in to the lockdown. So I had like a month of just panic. Oh my God, do I have enough care to like, oh my God, how am I going to pay them? And then I was also really fortunate to get a couple of hardship funds because if I didn't get those, the digital commissions alone would have not been enough to touch the sides. Like it was a combination of both of those things that has literally kept me alive. Because if I didn't have those things, I would I would hate to think what would have happened like in terms of falling into debt or what have you. Yeah, it's the truth, isn't it, of that thing of like, I've been in a few theatre Zooms talking about people having time to like rekindle their creativity because they're less busy. Mm. And I'm just like, yeah, and a, a lot of the rest of us are just earning our way out of not getting ill or not getting yeah, yeah. hungry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Once, if I fall ill and everything, everything crumbles. Like if I don't work and I can't pay my carers, everything starts to crumble. I have to work or create to keep afloat, which then meant the stuff that I wrote, at least during this period of time, to be honest, none of it was new. What I wrote was literally what I was experiencing. I wrote about the coronavirus law. I wasn't sleeping well, so I wrote about some of the weird dreams that I was having. Like I literally just wrote about the experiences I was having because that's all I could think of when you're in a pandemic. Like I'm not feeling particularly creative or inventive or innovative. I'm just thinking about how do I stay alive? How do I live long enough to see the end of this? as someone who like works with you and is an audience to your work the audience member bit of me it was relieved to see your work because it is it's like relieving it is it's like relieving to see someone speak about the moment I had this mad moment in the middle of lockdown where I was like nothing's reflecting the world back at me anymore because the world's changed so severely overnight fiction has lost its not even comforting that's too soft but like it's connective power you know and I was like looking Mm. around being like where can I find the bits of fiction that keep me like alert and alive and want to keep going and and I think the bits of work you did with the bush and that we did for headlong you know everything you've done because you're so like you've you've looked at this moment and you've already made art massively like personally helped me that's really lovely to hear. That's why I always come back to you to work with you because I think no one else does it like you, you know? 
I had a really formal question next, but <laughs> now it feels really inappropriate after like <laughs> now, go on, my go on. <laughs> I was just going to say, you're someone who works across forms with a lot of ease. All those things you've made, take lockdown purely as an example. I know you've been working on TV treatments, you've worked on a short film, you've worked on an audio play. What's it like process-wise, your writing process, shifting between those forms? Is there anything that guides you or do you just go where your heart takes you? A bit of both, in a sense. So I've had opportunities in the past to try those out. I've written in the past a lot of duds, so like bad short films and bad radio plays. And I feel like with more opportunities I've had to write in those mediums, hopefully I'm getting better at it because maybe some of those bad work aren't online for people to access. It just makes it look like everything that I write is like better. And I'm just like, oh no, it's just because you haven't seen that other shit stuff. So there's that. <laughs> and writing across mediums. So I, I like to think of myself as a storyteller. I don't ever want to feel beholden to one medium. When a story comes, when a character comes, when an idea or a theme or something I'm trying to find the best medium to tease it out. Like which medium will help me get this story out of my head is what I'm thinking. And sometimes it's writing it in one medium to discover that it's not that medium so that I've tried it as a play and it didn't work. I've tried it as an audio thing and it was slightly better. I've tried it as a short film, ding, ding, ding. So it's kind of testing. It's those sometimes kind of like in a lab and I'm testing out these stories in different shapes like, does it work as this? Does it work as this? Does it work as this? Like, lately, I've been exploring a potential idea for a potential graphic novel. Not to say that I know how to write graphic novels, but I like reading them. So there's something in that. And if it doesn't work out, that's fine. But if it does, great. I have these stories that I want to tell or I'm inspired by things, my experiences or things that happen to people I know. And I'm trying to find the right medium that has the most impact when it is shared with another person. Mm, that makes total sense. I guess as well, you've been part of the freelance task force during this time. So you've been part of these conversations about the specifically the theatre industry reassessing itself in this strange chasm <laughs> of a pause that mm. we found ourselves in. What do you want to see in the future? I think the pandemic has highlighted that the, the industry was always very fragile. It's not new news that the industry was held up 70% by freelancers. Like, that's not new information. It was just accepted. It was accepted that people worked more but earned less than what they worked for. It was just accepted and the pandemic has stopped everyone and everything. It's then forced the industry's hand that this will no longer be tolerated. Like, because when it's a life and death situation, exploitation is not in the equation. We cannot be trying to save one another's lives while also exploiting one another. And I feel like that has come up to the surface. And because there are some things that we know has always been a problem in the industry, this is an opportunity to bring everything to the surface. The things that were hot topics in terms of like representation and sick pay and things like that, it's like, okay, if we're going to address those things, let's address all the problems, everything. Let's not leave anything off the table that's for discussion and how can we make it better than it was doing before. At least some of the conversations that I've been listening to or been a part of, it feels like there's a part that's like burn it down and we'll build anew from the ashes, which I'm here for. I'm always here for burning things down. I love it. <laughs> um, I'm, not, I'm not a self-confessed arsonist, but if it means we get to start again, 
then let's do it. I feel like there's another part of the conversation where it's about kind of reform. How can we change what we've got? How can we get people to change their behaviours or their ways of working or contracts or what have you? And I think both are valid. I feel like a little bit, maybe those conversations are happening slightly separately. And I feel if there's a way of bringing those conversations together that, yeah, we need to burn down your work structure so that we can build a new so that now we incorporate sick pay, we incorporate childcare, we incorporate reasonable working hours, flexible working hours, the ability to work from home when necessary, to have Zoom meetings instead of asking people to come down from another city for a 10 minute coffee chat. If there are ways of bringing both those things together so that we're able to then use that to address all the problems in our industry, that would be amazing. But we're still, like with Britain's history, in terms of not acknowledging its racist and imperialist and colonialist history. Theatre doesn't even want to address the fact that it's been hella harmful to so many people. Theatre doesn't want to accept the fact that it has been hella racist. It has helped uphold white supremacy. It has Mm -hmm. been hella sexist and dangerous and has harmed people for the worse. And if it can't even acknowledge that in terms of its hiring, its pay structure, its the shows that it's programmed, it's historical programming. If you can't even address the fact that, yeah, we fucked up, but we're trying to do better, then it feels like we're going to be going around in circles for a really long time. Because how can you want to change something if you can't even admit that it was a problem to begin with? Does it want to change? Yeah. Oof. That's a good question. It doesn't seem like it from the outside, Debbie. Mm. (laughs) I can't Mm. lie to you. Theatre, like capitalism, is holding on for dear life that it thinks once the lockdown is completely stopped and we are back to, you know, it's safe to be in out again because there's a vaccine or whatever, it thinks it can just go back to normal. And it's like, no, you're not allowed to. We're not going to let you. Because if 70% of the workforce was freelancers, if we refuse to work, Who will do those jobs? We're in the shifted space now. And what that means for like reassessing the dynamic, reassessing the power structures, I think it can only go back through a massive regression, like a deliberate step backwards, which is totally possible because as you say, all of history. (laughs) But once a fire starts, you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. If I didn't believe change was possible... I would have left this industry a very long time ago, if I'm honest, because of the power or at least the transformative power stories have had on my life that I know that change is possible because even the way that I think and the way that I live and the way that I interact with people has changed. If I didn't think that was possible, I would have done that psychology degree at what you're talking about, plays. I only see plays at Panto. Do you know what I mean? Like, I would not be in this world if I didn't think change was possible. I think that is probably the perfect note to end on. Thank you so much, Matilda. You've been an incredible first guest. Thank you for having me. And thank you for sharing your vision of the world. Long may it shape into the version that you see because it's a glorious thing. Thank you. Thank you for listening to my conversation with the brilliant Matilda Ibini. Please tune into our second episode where I'll be speaking to international playwright Abhishek Majumdar about being someone whose work usually travels the world and has come to a bit of a standstill in the era of COVID-19.
The music for this podcast was composed by Patricia Panther with sound design by Richard Bell and I've been your host, Debbie Hannon. Please do check out traverse.co.uk to see our upcoming work in Trav3, our online venue. The Traverse is funded by Creative Scotland and the City of Edinburgh Council with additional support from the Scottish Government Performing Arts Venues Relief Fund. Traverse Theatre Scotland Limited is a registered charity, number SC002368.